Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North, all citizens of Earth. Very welcome to another episode in our series on breakaway civilizations and their covert space programs. Tonight we continue the timeline and explore the shadows of NASA. And who better to elaborate on this than the emeritus of this subject, Richard Hoagland, author of Dark Mission, which is state-of-the-art for all things NASA. Albeit we indulge in a three-part conversation, it is not sufficient for the forum's required depths, but it is a beginning, and in the future we shall dismantle this subject further, layer by layer. Today we browse through some of the essential basics. In addition, we get a few updates, including a new book on Mars. Hoagland has worked as an Astronomy and Space Science Museum curator, a Science Center Assistant Director, a NASA consultant, a Science Advisor to CBS News and Walter Conkright, and for Coast to Coast AM, and as a press and government educator. Hoagland has cooperated with many researchers and scientists throughout the years and has been on personal terms with well-known people such as Walter Cronkite, Carl Sagan, Arthur C. Clarke, Brian De Palma and Gene Roddenberry. In the early 1970s, he and Eric Burgess proposed to Carl Sagan the placement of a message to mankind aboard Pioneer 10. That was the first artifact to successfully escape the solar system into the vast galaxy beyond, carrying the plaque. Being a fan of Star Trek, he initiated in 1976 a campaign that successfully persuaded President Ford to name the first space shuttle the Enterprise. He was nominated for the prestigious Peabody Award of Journalism for his work with producing a joint NASA media event and is the only layman to have received the Memorial Medal, International Angstrom Medal for Excellence in Science, directly from Angstrom in '93, bypassing the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences normal channel of Uppsala University, since that is only for academicians. Hoagland is currently principal investigator of the independent non-profit space research NASA watchdog and public policy organization, the Enterprise Mission leading an outside scientific team in a critically acclaimed analysis of possible off-planet, intelligently designed artifacts. Their investigations have been quietly extended to include over 30 years of previously hidden data from NASA, Soviet and Pentagon space missions. He has authored best-selling books on his 40 years of intensive research into the possibility of an ancient solar system-wide high-tech civilization. He was the first to present the face on Mars theory, that there is water on our moon and on the Jupiter moon Europe, 
and is an avid proponent of the torsion hyperdimensional physics. Apart from books, he also advocates his research through journals, videos, lectures, interviews, and press conferences. Richard's pioneer proposal of a parallel covert space program fits hand in glove with our series, and today we welcome his first contribution to it. After some lobbying and nagging, we finally are fortunate to have a legend in the field of the classified space program research as our guest today. And I am, of course, speaking of none other than Richard Charles Hoagland. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Richard. <laughs> well, thank you much. And you now have the distinction of being the first person to actually utter my middle name. Oh, I see, I see. It's not a big secret, is it? No, not really. Hmm. You obviously had a good inside source. <clears throat> Robin, perhaps? <laughs> actually, actually, it's been such a hassle to get you on that we, we, we know several people in your team, I guess <laughs> you could call it. Okay. But it is a pleasure to, to finally get you on because you're, you're big in radio, but I don't think you've been on too many podcasts so far. So I'm glad we're, we got hold of you. Well, as my grandmother used to say, it's <clears throat> nice being had. <laughs> you did, did she? <laughs> now, this is probably going to be one of our more extensive programs, as we have many bases to touch, and you're such a wealth of information. Plus, the subject matter is so extensive, because today I'd like us to try to have a main focus on the history of NASA, basically. Okay. Well, by all means. But there's a million tentacles from there to everything, right? So They're always parenthetical asides, yes. Yes, yes. So we will do our best to go through this as orderly and chronologically as possible, and I will, of course, do my best to steer us back at track if need be. Okay. But unfortunately, like we talked about right before we started here, we, we have to do some hard choices. So... We will not explore in depth many of the related topics, unless you want to come back and, and do that, but instead have our main focus on NASA mm -hmm. and its dark history. And of course, the basis for our talk is your groundbreaking book, Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA, that you co-authored with Mike Barra and was first published when? On, let's see, 2000, uh, no, 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 I'm sorry, 1986, 80, no, I'm sorry, that was Monuments, 2006. Two, okay, 2006, not that long ago, though. Yeah, we, we, actually, we actually had a party at the National Press Club to uh, inaugurate his publication the same day as NASA sent up one of the shuttle missions, and it turned out to be wow. a pretty interesting shuttle mission because they sent up the lightsaber from one of the uh, George Lucas uh, Star Wars uh, <laughs> really? programs. Yep. And no one could figure out why NASA did that for a private individual, a citizen who had, you know, just written and produced and directed some, some you know, interesting movies. Right. But they took it up into orbit and they brought it back down and it's now in a museum in Houston. And then that very night, which I found stunning, a comet in the outer solar system, never before seen to do such a thing, blew up. Hmm. And over the next several weeks, it became larger than the sun. 
optically you had to eventually because it, it got bigger and fainter and fainter but literally its diameter was bigger than the sun which is almost a million miles across and this was far away in the outer solar system i think it was even beyond jupiter and it's like where is the energy out there where is the heat and i couldn't help but think that on the same day they launched the the lightsaber from star wars they were basically creating via the secret space program an homage to George Lucas because they blew up an object in mimicking of the death of Alderaan. Right. Yeah. You you couldn't see this from from Earth, could you? Oh yeah, easily with a bare eye. In fact, Robin and I, with the naked eye, was in Perseus, wow. which was well placed in the northeastern sky uh, around eleven o'clock at night. And I remember Robin and I went out, and she lay in the deck chair because she doesn't want to lean her head back too far, and we have binoculars and. It was, right. it was brilliant. It was spectacular. And, of course, it's all over the web. You just Google Comet Explosion 2006, I believe, and you'll find it. But I just thought the coincidence, when the Discovery was launched carrying the lightsaber, that night they blow up a comet in the outer solar system. <laughs> it's like we have this two- or three-tier track of reality yeah. where, you know, the sheep will never get to know what's really, really, really going on. They just yeah. see like the surface waves, but the deep underground uh, or underwater currents and the iceberg, you know, nine tenths underwater, mm -hmm. that seems to be the driving force for not, not just space, but almost for everything. Like when you look at the election of Donald Trump, is it an accident that Donald Trump has created the most chaotic, most bizarre administration in the history <laughs> of the United States? Do you think he attended it? Yes, absolutely. I am 100% in favor of the idea that this guy is not an idiot. This is a plan. The question is, what's the plan intended to do? Like yesterday, mm -hmm. he suddenly switched from loving Republicans to loving, you know, uh, Democrats. What was that all about? And all the Republicans. Yeah, he, he switched. He switched before that because he used to be a Democrat. Well, kind of, but he's also, in other words, he's he's the one guy you can't put your finger on, and everybody blames it's just him himself and I. <clears throat> I think there's a much more interesting, deeper agenda, and I frankly haven't haven't yeah. begun to figure it out yet. Okay, maybe we can can get into that. But you say coincidence. I mean, NASA is nothing if not into coordination, as we <laughs> as we shall learn today, I guess. Um, but yeah, I was going to say about your book, the revised and expanded edition. We have to to mention that that came out more recently. Yep. I actually gave away my original edition to a friend. Mm. Uh, Should never do that. Well, because I got this new edition. Oh, super. Okay. It does replace the old one, doesn't it? Yes, yes. We add. See, I, my publishers always have to keep telling me, you've got to write a new book because you keep adding stuff to the old one. <laughs> like like uh, Monuments has gone through, I think, five or six editions, and I kept adding and adding. And finally, Grossinger said, for God's sake, write a new one. Yeah. So I did. Yeah, that's, that's usually what people do. Look at Joseph Farrell. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's actually on, on, on an interesting chase to supersede Isaac Asimov as the most prolific science writer in history. It's insane. It's insane. I wonder if there's like a clones, a lot of clones of him. Well, the rumor about Isaac was that he had a bunch of kids uh, chained to desks and typewriters <laughs> in, uh, in Brooklyn. This, of course, was long before, you know, computers and laptops and all that. Right. 
I never really believed the rumor, but he was incredibly prolific. Oh, it was like a serious rumor. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Hmm. Hey, before we really begin, just something I'm wondering about your name. Mm-hmm. Someone told me, it may have been Robin, that it originates from Sweden. But I'll tell you, uh, Richard, here, yes, he, yes, absolutely. here in Norway, we have uh, a place called Haugland, and we have another place called Holugaland. Hmm. Do you really know your lineage? Oh, yes, yes. In fact, I went to Sweden with a bunch of people in, I think it was 95. I spoke, uh, I was given a medal from the Angstrom folks. Um, right. I, I, I briefly visited Norway. Oh. We literally, our, our, our guest, uh, our host rather, took us on a road trip to one of the checkpoints between your two countries. And we literally waved at the guard, drove into Norway, made a U-turn, came back into Sweden, waved at the guard again, and went home. <laughs> Just so I could say I had been to Norway. Now, obviously, if someone were to really invite me to Norway, I would love to come. But... Uh, it, it looked okay. it looked very it looked very similar to Sweden. I've got to say. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, uh, no, but it doesn't. Really? It really doesn't, unless you're at the east side or, and closer to Oslo. Huh. That's like Sweden. The thing with Scandinavia, actually, is that we have Iceland with its own specific nature. Uh, Iceland is volcanoes and mountains. Mm. Finland is uh, lakes and wood. Sweden is farm country a lot, and um, also a lot of wood, and Denmark is flat. But Norway has all of it, everything. Mm. So Norway is, and I'm speaking objectively here, probably the best tourist goal, if you're into nature. Interesting. Well, someday I will, I will get an invitation, I guess, to speak in Norway, and I will gladly accept. Let's hope uh, this show here will do something about that. In fact, we did play around with having a secret space program conference here. That was before Jeron okay. uh, had his, but it was in the same time. So when he launched his, we figured no point, better we cooperate instead. Right. So that didn't happen then, but um, we'll see what will happen in the future. We'll see. Okay. Now, uh, let's get to business yeah. As we shall see today, you were actually the first out with many things that are no general knowledge in the field. And I think I think we could also afford giving you some kudos for that while we begin. Oh, yeah. And let me thank you, by the way, mm-hmm. for bringing Dr. Farrell to my attention. He's one of the regular guests at this show. Uh, and I discovered him. I think you were on coast, mm-hmm. and you dropped his name. He was a complete unknown back then. Mm. And I researched him and researched him, and I found eventually some amateur podcast buried in the deep web, which was the Bite Show. And uh, after that, it just you know spiraled out of control. And now <laughs> is a household name like yours. But thank you for bringing him to our attention. Oh, sure. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I just actually spoke to Joseph, uh, about half an hour ago because hmm. I've had a guest on my show, the other side of midnight fallout. And I wanted him to do this coming weekend because I want to talk about the new book he's doing. And I want to talk about it in the context of a lot of interesting manipulation, like this weather system we're seeing Irma, which is bearing down at warp nine on the Miami. It appears to me to be an enhanced, artificially enhanced, technologically enhanced storm. 
like Harvey was. So the the world of secret manipulation is far beyond just NASA now. Mm. It involves everything from so-called mainstream politics. I mean, Donald Trump, president, mm. uh, to all other kinds of nefarious things. Like why, why, for instance, and this is not something we have to answer today, but why is the U.S. Navy having incredible problems with major warships running into commercial traffic all over the world? What's that all about? Mm. Well, I have a feeling it has to do with the interference of navigation and GPS and computers, and I have that feeling that it has to do with the celestial mechanics of alignments in the solar system and this rising background physics, the so-called torsion field, right. which modulates electromagnetic phenomenon, but it's not the primary cause of these things. It's the driver. It's the underlying foundation. It's, it's the classical ether. The ether is back, bigger and badder than ever, and it's real. I'm measuring it with the Accutron inertial sensor. And during the run-up to these storms, we've seen nothing but incredible activity on the Accutron. Uh, and the only answer to that is someone... Uh, hang is, on. That's, that's a measuring instrument you use? Yes, yes. It's the... Uh, all right. Let me, let me go into this in some detail then. Mm -hmm. The Accutron inertial sensor is an amalgam of some technologies that I borrowed from my late friend, uh, Dr. Bruce De Palma, yeah, right. who back in the 70s, who was measuring anomalous mechanics, rotating things, swinging things, pendulums. He was a physicist. He was very big into experimentation, massive, big experimentation. And he found that massive rotating objects behave differently than massive resting objects. Mm -hmm. And Newtonian dynamics does not deal with rotation. I don't know whether anybody really knows that, but it, it really doesn't. And therefore, relativity, which prescinded from Newtonian laws, it didn't really deal with rotation. But Tesla did. Tesla did, yes. So my friend Bruce De Palma, of course, decades before we became friends, in the 1970s on a farm in the middle of nowhere between New Jersey and Pennsylvania, is building a laboratory where he's rotating massive 30, 40, 50-pound weights and spinning them while they're rotating. Wow. And he found all kinds of incredible anomalous behavior that was not reported in any of the textbooks. And he went to MIT. He was an MIT grad. So um, he tried to take these anomalies to some major physicists at the time, one of them being a guy named John Wheeler at Princeton. John Wheeler, your audience may remember, is the physicist who coined the term black holes. And Wheeler practically threw him out of his office. He did not want to know any of these anomalies, either because he was terrified of the implications or because he already knew about them and mm. knew they were part of a whole class of suppressed science. Yeah. yeah. Can you spell Nazi bell? Exactly. So what, what uh, Bruce kept doing was doing these experiments. And one day, he rotated a big weight on a turntable, something like, I guess, 30 pounds. It was a concrete disc. It had a steel band around the equator. So as he spun it up, it wouldn't explode, fly apart from centrifugal force. Hmm. And he put an Accutron watch on a platform above the spinning disc to see what would happen. The idea was that if the spinning disc from his other experiments was creating some kind of field around the spinning object. He called it the odd field, O-D, odd field. 
Mm. Not ODD, but he was implying it was odd because it was odd. It was bizarre. It was unusual. It wasn't predicted by any of the physics he'd ever been taught, again, at MIT. Hmm. So he put the Accutron. Remember, this is the 1970s. There are no computers. There's no internet. It's just an Accutron watch. And what he did is he, he glued it to the face of a West Clock electric uh, kitchen clock. Hmm. And for those that are older in the audience who remember what a West Clock used to look like, it was one of the major clockmakers in the United States back then. And what he did is he synchronized the sweep second hand on the Accutron with the sweep second hand on the West Clock. And then he turned on his rotating disc underneath this assembly and he let it run hmm. for a thousand seconds, which turns out to be 17 minutes. And at the end of the 17 minutes, the Accutron, which Bulova had invented in the 1960s, early 1960s, and had touted as the most accurate revolution in timekeeping in 300 years, supposed to be accurate to plus or minus a second per day. Hmm. In those thousand seconds of his first experiment, the Accutron lost a second. Hmm. Now, that's like for you and me losing half our bank account. Right. Suddenly, it's just is gone. Yeah. Uh, or for Trump, maybe losing five billion dollars. Who, who who really knows? The point is, it was a stunning anomaly. So he did it again and again and again, and it was reliable. Thousand seconds, one second lost. From which he postulated that what was happening in the vicinity of a massive rotating disk spinning, um, I think three thousand RPM. I think that was the the um, uh, spin rate. The field created around it was changing the inertia of the little tuning fork in the Accutron. Because hmm. Accutron had developed, Bulova had developed in the Accutron, this new technology, not balance wheels and cogs and springs and all that, but a little tuning fork that was electrically excited by a little mercury battery inside the watch through coils. And every time Hang on this tuning fork, I hope that was tuned to the natural tone scale and not the exactly. artificial one that the musician used. No, it was tuned to 360 hertz. Exactly. Uh -huh. And and it was it was cut literally, you know, you can cut metal so it will resonate at its natural frequency for a given size and all that. Mm. So everything was in resonance, but the field around this rotating concrete disc spinning at like 3000 rpm in one in 1,000 seconds, caused the watch to lose time by a whole second. Hmm. Remember, it wasn't supposed to lose that or gain that in a whole day, 24 hours, which is 24 times 60 times 60 seconds. Hmm. So from this experiment, what I did uh, several years ago was to update it uh, using electronic uh, sensors and using computer technology to track the, the graph waves of, of the of the display of the frequency output and I have now a little portable inertial sensor that I have taken with Robin all over the world right I've heard you talk about it but you never have you ever made it into a product that people can buy or well we're kind of looking at that um, the thing is that you know you in order to make something that's going to work in the field it's got to be developed by millions and millions of dollars behind it and then right. it's got to be tested by commercialism and all that. Mm -hmm. The Accutron, the only problem with the Accutron is that Bulova stopped making them like 20 years ago. 
So the only place you can find them is on the web, and they're pricey, and they're very hard to repair if you do something dumb and stupid, like drop it on the floor or, Mm. you know, and and they have very incredibly fine wires in those coils. So it requires an Accutron specialist, of which there are only two or three that I found on the web. So it's not something you could really, unless it was just a small handful of people, you couldn't really commercialize it unless you replace the Accutron with some other commercially well-developed and tested system of a vibrating uh, mass in a sealed container. And I haven't really had the time to go and look at all that because the Accutron worked very well for us because it was developed by Bulova. It basically has stood the test of time, pun intended, (laughs) and it's very portable. Um, You know, it's like John Cameron Swayze's old Timex commercials, take a licking and keep on ticking. Um, So the Accutron for my use is very useful. I'm not sure whether it would be useful on a larger democratized scale, but it's something that I want to explore among a whole bunch of other stuff. And we just haven't had the time or the resources to... Yeah, you, you can make it sustainable. There's always people uh, who have different usage of it. Uh, one thing is just random consumers, but there's there's a lot of fields this can be applied to, especially if you're right that it's actually measuring torsion effects. And and I have to say also, De Palma is the brother of the famous director, Brian De Palma, I guess is his name. Mm-hmm. Brian De Palma. But if this was in the 70s, it was before his brother became a household director name, I think. Well, what's interesting is that Brian De Palma is this famous director, and he and Bruce kind of had this love-hate relationship over their, you know, the period of their lives until Bruce died very tragically in New Zealand back in the early 1990s. Under, I must say, somewhat mysterious circumstances. Um, You know, unless you're on the ground and you can do the the detective work, you don't really know. But it's just kind of provident that he was working on another technology when he up and died under, again, mysterious circumstances. But his his brother, Brian De Palma, did a, a movie which turned out to be a hidden homage to Bruce's physics work. Nice. And that was that was the movie Mission to Mars. Yeah, I love that movie. Because in the movie, remember the the, the opening scene is the is the tornado uh, in Sidonia, mm-hmm. which of course kills a couple of astronauts, and then there's a, a a rescue mission mounted from Earth to go and find the survivors. And hey, did did they really name Sidonia as the place? I don't know whether they named. Well, they didn't name. But ultimately. The whole movie resolves to the face on Mars, right, so it had right. to be Sidonia. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, but as part of that movie, again and again and again, there are sequences of rotation, 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 which is the hallmark of hyperdimensional torsion field physics. Mm. Like, remember the dance scene between the two astronauts in the uh, in the spacecraft headed to Mars? Mm. Uh, then, no, I don't remember. Okay, no. well, there, there, there's there's a rotating dancing in zero gravity, mm. and there was the there was the tornado in the beginning that kills the astronauts. That's rotation. Mm. Uh, there's a couple of other examples, but the most stunning example, uh, and again, I have to give a little backstory here. The hallmark of the whole torsion field physics is a number called nineteen point five, nineteen point five degrees. That is the angle of a tetrahedron, a four-sided, four-pointed geometric form placed inside 
a rotating sphere like a planet and it predicts that you'll have upwellings of energy where the tetrahedron touches the sphere on the inner sides at 19.5 either northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere and all over the solar system we've been documenting over the last several decades these geophysical energy phenomena erupting at 19.5 north or south yeah give you some examples the big hawaiian island chain the big island itself hawaii with mauna kea and mauna loa 19.5 north mm. all right mm. the great red spot on jupiter a, a, a spot bigger than the planet earth that's been there for over 300 years which is rotating which is rotating 19.5 south mm. the great dark spot they found on neptune when the voyager spacecraft in 89 i think flew by neptune that turned out to be at uh, 19.5 south and on and on and on over the whole solar system mm. so 19.5 is a critical number that is kind of like a significator a code for this physics shorthand mm. it's actually we were always rounding it up it's not really 19.5 it's 19.47 okay so okay. back to de palma's film there's a key sequence toward the end of the film where one of the astronauts has been prepping the earth return module to take off and leave and go home to earth and the crew is stuck inside the face on mars exploring yeah i remember that and they and they try to radio each other and there's interference because they're yeah. inside the base and they can't get you know and the poor astronaut sitting there in the capsule is counting down because of course you can only launch with rockets and certain launch windows and if you miss your window you're stranded so he has to go he has to leave at the appointed time and they give a close up shot of his arm with the spacesuit on and a digital watch Right. And it literally is focused in on 19.47. For seven, even. Wow. 19.47. <laughs> so he's clearly, the Palm is clearly connecting his brother's physics, yeah. my collaboration with his brother's physics, et cetera, et cetera. That's a wink, if ever the voice was. Now, if you go to the web and you find a copy of Mission to Mars by De Palma now, and you spool it down to that key scene, Mm -hmm. that scene has been changed okay now now the close-up shot of the watch on the arm of the astronaut counting down yeah. is is not a digital watch so you don't see the letters in red blinking 1947 it's a sweep second hand watch and unless you knew what you were looking for you'd never notice 19. <laughs> Or seven. So someone censored De Palma's movie to forbid people from seeing the criticality of 19.47 in the context of the film. Hey, did that happen after you started to to talk about it oh, yeah. publicly? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. But, uh, okay, 19.5, just so people know, this isn't something that you or Brian invented it's it's a no, no. mainstream thing in sacred geometry platonic solids it's established oh absolutely it's been documented for hundreds of years no one's known why it's important though and mm. what we figured out what i figured out was that the energy in a rotating stellar because it applies to stars too like the sun do you know that the sun varies over a period of about 11 years in what's called the sunspot cycle right mm. 
during the peak activity, you've got flares, you've got sunspots, you've got coronal mass ejections. Yeah, but there's cycles within cycles. I mean, there's many. It cycles, yeah. it cycles over about 11 years, and then you have a, a low point, very low activity in the cycle. We're coming up now to the low point in the so-called sunspot activity cycle. Mm. Well, at the peak of the sunspot cycle, the sunspots and all the activity on the surface of the sun that accompanies them, the magnetic flares, the coronal mass ejections, all the explosions and incredible streamers, and all of this occurs at two latitudes straddling the equator, 19.5 north and south. Mm-hmm. So the very energy cycle of the sun is a hallmark of this physics if you know what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And De Palma put that in the film and somebody took it out in the editing room and put in another scene that unless you understand the significance of that number, when the sweep second hand passes 1947, you'll completely miss the point of that scene. And obviously De Palma did not do that. Or if he did it, he did it under duress. Hey, is there evidence for the original scene? Is there evidence for what? For, for the original uh, clock. Did anyone? No, no, I've looked and looked and looked and I can't find it. Hmm. I know it was in the theaters originally because we went, you know, and, and watched it. It was, it was in, you know, when they would run it on on the television. I recorded several versions. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they've gotten wiped on VCR changes and you yeah. know cable box changes over the years. So unless I'm living through a Mandela effect, <laughs> unless I, you know, yeah. really, I mean, could be. by the way, I could use I could use for for the other side of midnight a good recommendation for somebody to talk to about the Mandela effect. I'm getting a whole bunch of people sending me emails telling me they're they're seeing differences in their yeah. history from what they were, you know, used to. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's all over the place. So who is doing the work? Who is who's the kind of go-to person in the Mandela effect like Joseph? Oh, we haven't uh, yeah, we haven't talked about it. Maybe Joseph, but if any listener out there who who knows who to recommend, contact us and I'll forward it to Richard. Hey, we've be already talked us away from the topic. I have to stare us back, Richard, although this is very interesting. <laughs> very interesting. My first official question to you is where were you when man made a small step and a giant leap? Oh, my gosh. So we're talking about July 1969, the evening of July 20th, 1969. I was in a huge aircraft hangar kind of overlooking the Pacific Ocean with a crescent moon hanging over the Pacific, dappling the water with moonlight. And I was standing side by side with Robert Heinlein, the dean of American science fiction, And I was there with him because I had invited him on as a guest for my consultancy with Walter Cronkite and CBS News. I was the official science advisor for the Apollo program to CBS News. Mm. And so I had invited Robert Heinlein to be on you know, with Walter. And it's so funny because the producers all looked at me and said, the dean of what? <laughs> they had no idea who Robert Heinlein was. They obviously, in their misspent youth, had never read a book of science fiction, let alone a book of, of Robert Heinlein's. Mm-hmm. So my claim to fame at CBS really all boils down to getting Robert to be on the show that night when mankind again, because now, of course, we know it's not the first time, mm-hmm. when mankind again in the 20th century set foot upon the moon, left artifacts, and uh, looked at the earth and, 
and realized that it would never, ever, ever be the same. And just to the youngsters out there, Walter Cronkite is this legion in mainstream television back in the day. Well, back when we had only three television networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC, Mm. uh, Walter uh, anchored the evening news show on CBS News. He was a CBS alum. He went back before World War II with people like uh, Eric Severide and and, uh, Roger Mudd and a whole bunch of people that I got to work with that I'd watched growing up on television. Mm. I mean, that was an, an incredible thrill to be advising Walter Cronkite, who during the Nixon years was dubbed the most trusted man in America because he told it like it is. I mean, that wasn't fake news. He came back from a visit to Vietnam and he basically told the president and the country it's lost. We need to get out. And the president said in, in meetings we now have notes of minutes of, he said, well, if we've lost Walter Cronkite. We've lost the country. And that's why the Vietnam War wound down. Mm. Can you imagine any major network anchor these days having that ability to literally voice the voice of the people and say, get out, and the presidency and the country followed suit? No, no. Mainstream media is dead, so it won't happen. That was a special time. Um, But even before this, uh, when was NASA founded by whom? And why? Hmm. Okay, well, after 1957, which I remember vividly because I was running around with my dad and my brothers and sisters, and we were hawking pies that my mother would make in the kitchen of our our little restaurant. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing Sputnik, Sputnik 1, with a pair of binoculars borrowed from one of the guys on whose front lawn we were standing who had bought one of my mother's pies. And so 57 to me was an epic year because I saw with my own eyes the first spacecraft put in orbit by human beings in thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. We always have to keep bracketing that because people don't realize we've done all this before and before and before. Yeah, and and we'll we'll get to that according to my notes. But 57 in the 20th century for us was the first time. Yeah. So that spurred a huge revolution politically. It was... It was basically, I can't think of a modern analog for what it did to American society. Because up until that point, following World War II, we felt, you know, fat and sassy. Americans were the leaders of this. They were the leaders of that. They built the best this, the best that. They had the newest cars, the biggest tail fins. They won the war, they thought. We won the war. You know, democracy had defeated the commies, et cetera, et cetera. So we were we were cake of the walk, as they used to say. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly these upstart Russians, these technological backward primitive Russians, did something that the vaulted Americans could not do. They launched a spacecraft into Earth orbit, Sputnik 1. And this little beep, 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 beep. Mm. Every day, every 90 minutes as it went around the world, basically shouted that America was not first. Well, of course, America <laughs> reacted like Americans always do when they're second, they were determined to become first again, which, Mm. of course, is what we did. We landed on the moon first, beat the Russians, et cetera, et cetera. But what that did in 57 was set in motion a a series of political events where all of the military services, back then, there were no civilian space programs. There certainly were no, you know, uh, corporate or, or, or private enterprise space programs. There was the military. There was an Air Force program, there was an Army program, 
There was even a Navy space program. Can you imagine mm. the Navy launching rockets? <clears throat> anyway, there was this fierce competition between military services, and nothing was getting done. Mm. Hardware was being built on a, on a breakneck timetable. It would launch. It would fail. It would fail. It, it, was, it was really kind of very disappointing as a kid, you know, 11, 12 years old, growing up and seeing all these failures from supposedly America. We were number one, right? Mm. So enter General Dwight David Eisenhower, i.e. President Eisenhower, and in July of 1958, just about uh, almost a year after Sputnik, which was launched in October of 57, he creates a bill for Congress creating NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, as a civilian space agency. So he's the one insisting on this being civilian. Exactly. Mm. And the idea was it was going to be civilian, so it would get it out of the hands of all the military services, you know, competing and losing focus on their main mission was to defend the country. You know, space to them was kind of like, you know, blue sky. It was that frontier. It was, it was, it was glitzy. It was high profile. But it didn't really, you know, how could you justify a space program for the Army? You know, right. were we going to put Marines on the moon if you were the Navy? Were we yeah. going to, you know, launch Air Force fighters to Mars? No. So <clears throat> he created this civilian space agency called NASA. The Space Act was, was voted up by both House and Senate. He signed it in July of 1958, and that was the beginning, the formal beginnings of NASA. Now, what, of course, nobody knew, because back then there was no Internet. Mm. You, couldn't, you couldn't access the charter easily now you can just google you know nasa space charter and it will spit it right out in your computer <clears throat> buried in the fine print in the space act was the little known reality that in fact nasa is not a civilian space agency exactly and aren't you actually one of the first to bring this to a people's attention oh probably Because you were very early talking about this, and it's so uh, important because even today, at least here in remote Norway, so many people regard NASA as the final authority. They trust them. They don't do it with CIA, but they do it with NASA. But everything changes well, if NASA actually is under the DOD. Well, it's, also, it's all about branding. I mean, if you go and read yeah. the charter, and you can go to the enterprisemission.com website, and you can actually look up the NASA charter. It's there on, on, our, on our website. In the fine print, you will see that there are several provisions where the national security and the national security adjunct of the presidency has final veto over everything that NASA can release. In other words, unless it goes through the national security doorway, no NASA data can be just released by the agency by itself, which means the military, the DOD, the Department of Defense, has final veto through the president's national security advisor on whatever NASA releases. So everything you see from NASA has been nicely and carefully sanitized mm. so it will not impact national security. So what could possibly impact national security by measuring, let's say, the radiation at Jupiter? Well, it's not the radiation at Jupiter. <clears throat> it's the artifacts on Jupiter's moons that the cameras on the unmanned spacecraft have photographed which NASA is very deftly ordained to remove, to censor, before they put out the pictures. Mm -hmm. And once you have that in place, once it's legal 
for censorship of NASA civilian data, then all bets are off. How can you trust without a lot of background checking and cross-correlating that anything that NASA gives you is the full truth, the whole truth, and exactly. nothing but the truth. And, and add to this uh, another thing that I think you were the, one of the first to at least popularize to people's attention, and that is that Brookings report that they commissioned. Right, right. Uh, that adds to the secrecy. Can you just give us a, a brief outline of what that's about? Yeah, and again, you're right. I was the first one to make a big deal of this. Mm. Um, Brookings was a think tank study that the reason we call it Brookings, it was commissioned by NASA after Eisenhower formed NASA in July of 58. The agency turned to these think tanks. There's a whole genre of, of institutions, so-called academic institutions that grew up after World War II. The Rand Corporation out in Santa Monica, Brookings down the street from the White House in Washington, the Hudson Institute run by... Uh, uh, oh, I forget his name up in, in New York, Hudson, New York. They were all kind of civilian academic ensembles of brains, eggheads, they were called, that would give advice to military authorities, to the civilian power structure, to the White House, to uh, Congress, whatever. So NASA turned to Brookings, one of these think tanks, and basically asked it right after Eisenhower formed it, Give us a study looking like 20, 30 years out the impact of NASA funding and NASA activities and potential NASA discoveries on the American economy, on the American future, on American society. It was a very broadly based study. I actually have, are rare to have an actual hard copy version of the Brookings report. Now, it's not called Brookings. There's a formal title, and I would have to go and search it, it's something to do with the future of, of uh, uh, peaceful exploration of outer space. Uh, when we come to a break, I'll go and look up the actual okay. title. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can, but you can Google Brookings report, and you know Google's very intelligent now, so it will find the Enterprise mission. And if you use Brookings report comma Enterprise, it'll take you right to the pages on the Enterprise mission website where Brookings is reproduced in GIF format. <clears throat> I did this specifically so that we had a copy of the actual pages of the report. So people couldn't say, oh, you guys had altered it, you know, in some kind of, yeah. of web program. Yeah, that's important because the debunkers always tries with those cheap shots. Just let me add also that Enterprise Mission he's mentioning here is the name of his website. Uh, so that's what you're referring to when you say Enterprise Mission. Yeah. Yes, enterprisemission.com. Just Google yeah. that. will take you. And, and as I said, add Brookings or Brookings Report. Um, but it was the longer title was something about the peaceful uses of outer space. Okay. And they looked 20 and 30 years out, and they had a huge uh, panoply of experts. They had economists, they had military folks, they had agriculturists, they had meteorologists, they had electronics people, they had academicians, they had research scientists. They had a very and what was their mandate? To basically examine NASA's impact on the American society 10, 20, 30 years in the future. Hmm. That's not. And one of the one of the um, participants was a gal that I worked with at the American Museum of Natural History many years later. Her name was Margaret Mead. She was a very well-known anthropologist. She had done her Ph.D. fieldwork in the islands of American Samoa in the Pacific Ocean back in the uh, uh, 40s or 50s. 
So she was, and, and she ultimately wound up at the American Museum of Natural History. So I would encounter her stomping around in the halls at two or three o'clock in the morning with her big, you know, iconic cane. Mm -hmm. And we would have these very interesting discussions. Well, her attitude really permeated Brookings because in the Brookings report <clears throat> on beginning on page, I can, I can remember this from heart, page 216 in the report, she wrote and mandated an inclusion of a whole series of caveats to where if NASA ever found evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence, and back in those days, UFOs were big, um, the recommendation from Brookings, sorry, had a frog in my throat there, mm -hmm. here in a dry desert too, amazing. Uh, the recommendation of Brookings was that they should not tell not just the people, but even the scientific community. Mm. And the reason was Margaret Mead was terrified that even the knowledge that we were not the best and the brightest, <clears throat> that the human race was not the top of the heap, mm. would so undermine our character and our resolve and our morale that scientists would no longer go to work. People would no longer occupy job because basically life would not be worth living. This was all her anthropological projection for what happened to the natives in American Samoa when Americans moved in with tanks and gasoline and electricity and fans and air conditioning and all that. Mm. That we as a planet would basically shrivel in the face of superior intelligence, particularly for scientists who would feel that, well, everything had already been discovered, so why should they bother showing up to the lab? Right. I mean, she was so paranoid, and this, this perception permeated that section of the Brookings report to the point where I believe it became policy. Actually, right. it became a great excuse for policy, but that's another discussion. Hey, did you reprint this uh, in your book? Oh, yes. yes. So they can get it there. It's all it's it's in uh, Monuments of Mars. It's in Dark Mission, but most actively it's on the web. You know, for free. Yeah. You just go Google the Enterprise Mission dot com, uh, Brookings Report, and it will take you right there. And you can read it because what this was was a license to cover up everything for NASA. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting in the report, it actually says at one point, if I can remember, it says while the the discovery of extraterrestrial life will not take place for the next 20 years. And I've always thought, how did they know in 1959 that we would not discover, NASA would not discover evidence of extraterrestrial life for 20 years? Mm -hmm. How can you put a date on discovery unless you already have the discovery in mm -hmm. your hip pocket and that's the date when it was going to be publicly announced? Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is a shaggy dog story from beginning to end. Right. We have data now going back before uh, NASA missions to the moon, NASA missions to Mars. We have data now that the government, the U.S. government, has known about extraterrestrial artifacts, extraterrestrial construction, extraterrestrial buildings on a humongous, yeah. incredible superhuman scale from the earliest years of the Kennedy administration, L. That's very interesting. We've been tracking uh, this story up until 
until Kennedy and he's so deeply involved. Let me just also add a very important caveat here, and that is that when you say extraterrestrial, you're simply describing the location. It's not to automatically mean, as many jump to conclusions, that some ET from Sirius necessarily built any of these structures and ruins. It's just that it's stuff that's not on Earth. Al, that's a most perceptive uh, demarcation, and you're one of the few people that I've ever encountered on this subject that actually understands. There's a real fundamental uh, technical difference between extraterrestrial and alien. Yeah, but we are podcasters, so we are a little bit updated. (laughs) (laughs) A ping for social media. Okay, here's my definition. Extraterrestrial means where you hang your hat. Remember in, in Star Trek Four, where the, the, the female protagonist says, you ask Kirk, you know, where, where do you live? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and he says, well, or, or, she, or she says something like, so, so you live in space? He says, no, I work in outer space. I live in Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, more used to Captain Picard. Yeah, well, you have but, to go. Uh, he had many good one-liners, Kirk. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Well, this was actually in the, in, the, in the movies. This was the fourth Star Trek movie. Okay? okay. The one about the dolphins saving Earth and all that. Right, right, right. Very, very fun movie. I recommend it highly. I recommend all of them highly because there's lessons to be. Yep. So anyway, extraterrestrial merely is a definition of real estate. Yeah, right. Now, alien is about DNA. An alien does not have human DNA. But a human being living on Mars or the moon or a base on the space station is by definition an extraterrestrial, but he's not on Earth at the moment. He's in outer space. Mm. He's working in outer space or he's living temporarily in outer space. Now, if you live permanently in outer space, you're still not an alien if you live on the moon and you have human DNA. So with those two definitions, the stuff that we're finding, the stuff that we found, again, now going all the way back to Kennedy, and I never talked about this on the air. So I want to spend a couple of minutes going back. What did Kennedy know and sure. when did he know it? And did this, in fact, was this the reason for his murder mm-hmm. or his assassination? Right. And my vote is yes. And we may have an answer to this in this October through this president, <clears throat> because Donald J. Trump is the president who is either going to release all the hidden documents on the Kennedy assassination or like George Wallace, he's going to stand in the doorway and forbid them from being released under national security. And I have Trump people telling me, oh, he's going to release them. I have other people saying that he's bought and paid for by the corporatists or the mob or the globalists or whatever. Or they have him by the balls or they clipped his wings. And they'll never see the light of day and they will never see them. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a really interesting conundrum. Are we going to get to see why Kennedy really was killed? And I think it was because of what he found in outer space, having nothing to do with the mafia, nothing to do with the Russians or Cuba or anybody. It's the fact that he was going to share what they found with Khrushchev. Mm. And the Nazis in NASA at that time, who, of course, were dead set against anything Russian, uh, over their dead body were they going to share this incredible information about a super civilization in our own backyard from which we could, you know, garner all kinds of technological and war making advantage. They didn't want to share that with the Russians. We were in this loggerheads, you know, till death, you know, do us part kind Mm -hmm. of confrontation with the Soviet Union, with the communists 
And so when Kennedy proposed sharing, remember in September of, 70, of, of 63, he went to the UN and he actually gave a speech where he talked about inviting the Russians to go to the moon with us? Yeah. And, and weren't you the first also to drop the bomb that Khrushchev and JFK had secret talks about cooperation yes, behind yes. CIA's back? Yep, yep. If you dragged up his son or something into the... Well, what happened is his son, I forget his first name now, is a professor, uh, I believe, of history at Brown University. And his son did a, an interview for PBS, a PBS documentary some years ago, where he admitted that his dad, Khrushchev, had, um, uh, Premier Khrushchev, had secret conversations with Kennedy going back to their meeting in Vienna in 1961 when they supposedly had the summit and it was a really bad thing for Kennedy and the Americans because Khrushchev saw this young kid, had no respect and all that and basically walked all over him. And that's when the Berlin Wall went up and all kinds of terrible things happened because Khrushchev evaluated Kennedy wrongly at that meeting in Vienna. Mm. He apparently reassessed his assessment after the Cuban Missile Crisis because he saw a stern, steely president, but with openness and a willingness to negotiate and a flexibility against the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who were all under the aegis of Curtis LeMay, pounding Kennedy daily to basically bomb the hell out of Cuba. And of course, we now know from McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense back in those days, that the Russians had introduced tactical nuclear weapons into Cuba on some of those missiles. So if the Air Force had bombed Cuba, the Russians would have launched the missiles and we would have dissolved in World War III and I would not be having this conversation. Mm. So after the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev reevaluated, which shows us how bright Khrushchev was. Mm. And he realized and he told his son strolling through a, their, the gardens of their dock outside Moscow, and this is reported again by Khrushchev's son at Brown University in this PBS documentary, that he said, now, Kennedy is a man I can do business with. Yeah. So 12 days before Kennedy was killed, Khrushchev accepted his offer to go to the moon in the Apollo program together with the United States. Exactly. A joint program. And 12 days later, he was killed. And then a few months after that, Khrushchev, was... Khrushchev is put under house arrest yep. and removed from the power structure because obviously the deep state around the world, the guys who really run the planet, they could not have an end to the Cold War except on their timetable. Yeah. And, and, and to the youngsters out there, remember that Khrushchev was perceived eventually as what Gorbachev ended up being perceived, namely as a reformist, a more benevolent Soviet leader, unlike these mainstream Soviet leaders that were shadows of Stalin, if you like. Like Brezhnev and, and those guys, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is significant. Both of them in the same timetable. Are wiped out of the equation right after they cooperate. Yeah, because they wanted to cooperate in going to the moon. Now, what's yeah. on the moon? Why is that such a taboo? Precisely. I have found evidence, and I've had the evidence stolen, which is a kind of an interesting story, 
um, on Earth satellite reconnaissance images. Remember back during the um, during the height of the Cold War, when Kennedy is coming in and Eisenhower is going out. You know, the transition of 1960, the election of 1960. Our biggest excuse me, our biggest fear was that the Russians were going to either come across the North Pole with huge fleets of bombers and wipe out the United States with atomic weapons. Yeah, the Red Scare. Or they were going to send missiles and do the same thing. So Eisenhower had proposed to Khrushchev in those years that they have what was called an open skies policy. And Khrushchev, in other words, we would fly airplanes over the Soviet Union. They would fly reconnaissance airplanes over the United States. And each side would exchange data showing where the missiles were, where the aircraft were, and showing we were not preparing for war. Because to, to have a war, you got to move a lot of manpower and a lot of munitions, a lot of stuff. So a reassurance policy thing. Yep. So Khrushchev turned that down. The reason is because Francis Gary Powers happened. The U-2 flight. Remember the CIA uh, reconnaissance aircraft, the U-2, the high-altitude big long wing kind of glider jet plane. It, it, it made a serendipitous pass over the Soviet Union just mm. before a summit between Eisenhower and Khrushchev. Provocation from the CIA. Of course, they always interfere. Well, yeah, because they were, they were pushing you know, to do this. Either they were pushing to do it because they wanted data or they were pushing to do it because they knew maybe it would get shot down and it would put the kibosh on the summit. Anyway, that happened. Francis yeah. Gary Powers U2 was brought down by a high altitude uh, air to air air, air to gr ground to air missile. Powers survived, was put on trial in Moscow, and sentenced to I forget how many decades of hard labor for being a spy. Eventually, he was released and he became an LA weatherman. Um, that's a whole other story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What happens in America when you're, you're big and famous? You wind up with a big cushy job on television. Yeah. Anyway, that was Francis Gary Powers. <clears throat> the point is that until the development of rockets and satellite technology, what was going on in the Soviet Union was as mysterious as what was going on on the backside of the moon. Because you can never have enough spies on the ground to tell you the really important stuff you need to know with a time-critical uh, deadline. Mm -hmm. Enter satellites and rockets <clears throat> and the creation of the first spy satellites which you could put into orbit, they would orbit for X number of days, they would then re-enter, you would then pick them up, you bring the film, remember they didn't have electronics back then, it was film, mm. you bring the film to the CIA or the Air Force, they would develop the film, analysts would then look it over, and you'd basically know where the airfields were, where the rockets were, where the airplanes, the bombers were staged, and all of that. Mm. It was a stunning revolution Yeah, but it wasn't the first, really. What about Black Knight? Well, we don't know what Black Knight is. No. I, I suspect it's the antediluvian technology. Exactly, me too. And for okay. those of you who are talking about, in the 1950s, there were a couple of major newspaper stories, mainstream stories, about um, early warning radar seeing something in orbit long before any country on Earth was able to put something into Earth orbit. Mm. And it was called the Black Knight. I have a feeling it was something left over from our previous, as you just said, antediluvian civilizations. I haven't really had the time to track down the orbits and all that, so I don't know whether it could have survived that long. 
Oh, there's so much attention to it now. You should really do it, actually. Even Pepsi Cola has. Well, it. there was attention for a while, and then it all went away. Oh, I know, but everybody's interested now. More people than ever knows about it. But being interested in having real data are two different things. True. You provide the data, and we provide the interest. <laughs> how, how does that sound? Uh, in my copious, <laughs> copious spare time, I think we have more pressing issues than Black Knight. Uh, maybe, maybe. Um, and maybe Black Knight will be rediscovered by, by Elon Musk's private space program or Bezos oh, or, that would be cool. or one of those guys. Yeah. The point is that if there was one, there should be more than one. If This is another parenthetical aside. If, in fact, we're not the first high-tech civilization on the Earth. Are you all right? I just have to clear my throat. Oh, okay. you, just, you just have many um, examples of previous high cultures which could create space programs and send spacecraft all over the solar system. Yeah, what about all this space junk, uh, so-called? Maybe there's, you know... Well, some of the so-called space junk, because it wouldn't be operating after thousands or tens of thousands of years it would be junk but it would be artificially created junk not by aliens mm -hmm. but by previous extraterrestrial human cultures which had spread out occupied the solar system colonized various places set up bases set up outposts set up ships set up space habitats and then died Hey, when we talk about definitions, you gave us two definitions for extraterrestrial and alien but what about what if you belong to the human species but you're not born or raised on earth you have in fact no direct relatives on earth what would you call that okay this introduced <laughs> let's not go too deep into it right now but yeah. no no it's very yeah. it's very interesting because this is what i ended dark mission with right i have a section in dark mission which by the way all this stuff is available on amazon just google you know the book names and it'll take you to the publishers and all that yeah we'll get to that at the end today so yeah at at the end of dark mission i laid out what i thought really happened in the interesting controversy around what neil armstrong really said when he set his boot on moon dust in oh. that july 20th evening of 1969 mm -hmm. remember what he's supposed to have said That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind, right? Right. Except that's not how it came out. If you listen to the, uh, it's not a transcript, the, the recording. Again, you can Google all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pull up Neil Armstrong's famous first words for setting foot on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And what I do in Dark Mission in that chapter, the end chapter, is I take apart that phrase because there was a lot of controversy. Oh, the A got, got hidden under some kind of static or some kind of interruption. No, if you listen to it, it's crystal clear. He says oh, that's one giant step for man. I get it. So what I get it. That's a huge difference. Is of course, because it means in the context, human race is not man. It's mankind. It's like man. Man is all our other relatives, cousins mm. and aunts and uncles and great, 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 great grandmothers with the human genome spread across God knows how many thousand light years of the galaxy. And what he was saying in code was, guys, we've joined the club. Mm. One small step for man. That's us on Earth. Uh, yes. A human leap for mankind. That's the whole human race everybody else yes yes who's related who are not here who are extraterrestrials who live 
all over this solar system in enclaves that we haven't seen yet and far, far beyond because the speed of light is not the limitation to travel yeah. in interstellar space. We, we have a separate series on this. Okay, uh, so you have that? Yeah. Uh, we call it Evidence for Antediluvian Civilization. And uh, it's so important because many people, they don't know how to define this. But I, I'm saying, if you can breed, if you can breed and not have sterile uh, outcome, then it's the same species. Exactly. You can't, it's no two ways about it. Like the Neanderthals, they, they were slandering the Neanderthals for the longest time, <laughs> calling them another species. But no, we are Neanderthals. And if uh, indeed the ancient texts are right, that the so-called gods could breed and have children with, and, and the, what was the Egyptian civilization where they had the line preserving the yeah. blood of the gods, Obviously, it's man. Now, where it came from, who came first? Did we send them out, then they came back, or did they see it or see it? That's an entire big, different discussion I'd like to have with you. And Tom van Flandern's book springs to mind, and, and we could have mm. hours about that too. But just for the sake of record, I think it's important to distinguish. Al, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, this, this whole conundrum is going to be dealt with in our latest book that I'm doing with six other authors, wow. our, uh, our our bridge crew of the Enterprise mission. Yeah. Um, and it will be out hopefully by Christmas. I thought it was going to be out earlier, but we have so much data to pack into a small amount of space. It's taken a lot of time to sort out which we print and which we save for the next book and the next book. Uh -huh. But yeah, we're, we're going to deal with the origins of humankind, nice. of man, in this book and in fact, it, we have evidence now that someone came to this solar system. They kidnapped proto-humans, hominids, Homo erectus. Right, right. They, they took them to Mars. They created Homo sapiens in a laboratory, then raised them in, in enclosed arcologies, cities on Mars, until they were forced to re-immigrate back to Earth when the environment of Mars went to hell in a handbasket, which was after the Great War 66 million years ago, when a major planet in the solar system was destroyed by incredibly advanced technological means, by torsion technology, and we've been living with the shattering results ever mm. since. That was the fall. Right. Everything after that is basically trying to rebuild humanity, man, back to a level that we had before the Great War. So Neil I'm Armstrong... I'm drooling, I'm drooling. Hang, hang on, before we go to break, I want, uh, since you mentioned the book, let's just let's just continue a little bit about that and then take a break. Okay. Uh, who's the other co-authors of that book? Okay, Kinthea has been the Enterprise Mission Art Director for decades going back. She did the early seminal work on, on uh, manually creating from the two images from NASA, the Viking 35A-72, and Viking 70A13, those are image ID numbers. She created the first clay model, three-dimensional clay model of the face from those two stereo images, right. which then Mark Carlotto, who's not part of the book. Um, oh, he's a scientist. I, I've heard about him. Yeah, yeah, but, but he's not part of this current project. Oh, okay. But what he did was he validated that uh, analog model, Kinthea's analog model, with incredible 3D computer imaging taking right. the NASA original data tapes, putting them in the computer, using shape from shading algorithms. And in the book, there will be side-by-side -side comparisons of her analog clay model. I mean, she spent 
thousands of hours sculpting, taking little, you know how they sculptors have these little tiny spatulas, Mm -hmm. removing a little bit of clay and then adjusting the lights to see if it matched the images. And then taking the lights away, doing more sculpting, putting the lights back, taking more pictures. I mean, it was incredibly painstaking. Her stomach muscles alone suffered because, and her back, because you're literally bending over a light table with clay on it Right. Uh, trying to recreate what's on the surface of Mars. She's one of the authors. Um, Keith uh, Laney, a uh, well-known uh, in, uh, imaging expert in North Carolina. Uh, Ron Gerbron, he's in Los Angeles, another imaging expert. Um, let's see, Tim Saunders, he's in Turkey, uh, participating halfway around the world because he's into 3D computer modeling now. So he's doing a lot of the 3D modeling of the current data coming down from the Curiosity mission, including things you can put on your desk as keepsakes. Mm. What would you, how much would you give to have a three-dimensional 3D printed copy of a genuine artifact on Mars long before any boots ever touch the surface? Wow. That's what Tim's going to do for this book. Right. Uh, See, I'm missing people. Um, uh, Andrew Curry, your friend Andrew, who was the guy that, you know, kind of helped to put us together. He's an artist. He and I did an early show where we talked about uh, the uh, second guy on Apollo 12, Alan Bean, is a space illustrator. And all he's been doing for the last 30 years is illustrating in his paintings all the secret, incredible things they saw that the astronauts can't talk about in terms of alien structures on the moon. Hmm. And Aaron and I had a great discussion on that. And that's when he kind of joined the team. And he does these artistic recreations from the visual data, from the imaging data. And I know I'm forgetting some other people. Um, but they will get uh, due when it's out there. Do you have a title already? or? Oh, yes. yes. It's called um, uh, Hidden Mars, you know, because it can't be open Mars because everything's <laughs> always been hidden by NASA, yeah. a la Brookings. Hidden Mars, subtitle, A War in Heaven. Nice. Nice. The reason Mars has this warlike attribution has nothing to do with its color. It has to do with all the the tanks and artillery and stuff we're finding in the images from NASA all over the damn planet. And Brandenburg, Dr. Brandenburg substantiates this uh, paradigm. So, yeah. 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 He has two so-called nuclear events, although I have some issues with some of the technical aspects of, of John's work because I have a feeling that torsion could explain what he's trying to explain with old-fashioned nuclear weaponry. But I guess he has to stick to the available paradigm, right? So, Well, not really. I mean, but he, he's not really conversant with the torsion physics. Oh, okay. Mm. So part of our discussion with John always when I have him on the show is, you know, well, John, we have these examples. We have Kozarev. We've got Akimov. We've got all these Russian guys who have been doing all these experiments. And it leaves you isotopes that simulate what a nuclear explosion is, because ultimately, when you're banging off a nuclear weapon like uh, Kim Jong-un did the other day under under Korea, you have to impact the torsion field to do it, and the torsion field impacts the nuclear process to do it. So ultimately, we're talking the same physics, it's just been segregated. So John's background is in mainstream nuclear physics, so he's trying to explain these isotopes using a mainstream approach, because he's not conversant yeah. with the fact that there is a hidden physics 
to which he has not been. Yeah, uh, but it's just a matter of logic. You don't even have to have just a medieval state like North Korea. Obviously, so an advanced civilization on Mars would have something more advanced than what a medieval state has today, right? Well, primarily, So nuclear atom bombs, uh, that's just a stepping stone to to deeper destruction and, and, and technology. Richard... Very interesting, but let's end the first segment on this note. And when we come back, we'll go even deeper into this material. Sounds good? Sounds great. Yep, yep, yep. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks.